Psalm 88 is the saddest psalm of the Hebrew Psalter. It is the diligent prayer of the suffering. The diligent prayer of the suffering. The psalmist, Heman the Ezraite, laments the constant affliction from which he suffers. From his point of view, he is just knocking on death's door. And so he does the only thing he can possibly do to find relief and peace. All other means and methods have failed him. And so he begins to pray day and night to Yahweh. As we consider this diligent prayer of the suffering, in verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 88, we're going to look at the specific suffering. And then in verses 10 through 12, we're going to see a shadow. And then in verses 13 to 18, we'll see the supplication. So let's begin in verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 88. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles, and my life is drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Now let's begin in verse 1 and notice how God is addressed. Haman, the Ezraite, addresses him as Yahweh. Capital L, small cap, O-R-D. He is addressing the personal God of Israel, the God of his salvation or his deliverance. Now, it's interesting that he invokes God in this way because it identifies that he has a personal relationship with this God, who indeed is Elohim of Israel or the God of Jacob. Now, the reason here that God is my salvation is sufficient for why we ought to pray. We can stop right here and say, this is why we pray, because God is our salvation. This psalmist, though, has another reason to pray, and it's the suffering from which he struggles. Now, we see here that he knows God is his Savior, and that is why he's now going to pour out his soul, his innermost person, before God. The fact of the matter is, friends, if God is your Savior... You can come to him without any pretense. You can come to him without any pomp, without any circumstance. And you can tell him who you really are. He already knows. You can tell him what you're you're really struggling with. He already knows. And you say, well, if he already knows, then why why should I come to him? The same reason a child goes to a parent. Certainly the parent may know what you're dealing with, what their child is struggling with or suffering from. But yet the child because it wants comfort, because it it wants security, it wants relief, will go and cry out to the parent. And so that's what we are to do with God. The psalmist continues and expresses his continual prayer. Literally, he's just barraging God with, with 
fact after fact after fact of what he is suffering with. And he says, you know, it's that, like kind of like we see with Jacob in Genesis 32, 26 when he wrestled with God. I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. I'm not going to stop praying until you answer me. And so he's crying out night and day. This is perseverance in prayer. And why does he persevere in prayer? Because he knows who God is. He is his deliverer. And if he can deliver me then, he'll deliver me now. And therefore, I'm going to keep on praying. You and I need to be perseverant in our prayers as well because God has, is, has and is our deliverer. As Jesus commended the man who prayed until the answer came, so should we, like that man, continue to pray until the answer comes. Luke 11 and verse 8. Now, Haman here is pursuing God because of whatever catastrophe, whatever suffering has come upon him. And in verse 3, he's like, listen, I'm drawing near to the grave. I'm close to death at this point. I've got nowhere else to go. You know, and, and maybe he wasn't close to death, but that's how he felt. You know, and sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering, we think, man, it can't get any worse. You know, it would be better to just be done with everything. And we really lose a, a, our proper sense of perception when we're going through suffering, especially great suffering. And so he here is crying out to God, I have nowhere else to go. I'm expressing this with intensity. Yahweh, hear, accept my prayer. I'm petitioning you as my God, as my king. Turn an ear, turn your ear to my cry. In other words, you know, he wants God to turn his head, cock his head to the side, and give him his ear so that he hears Haman and Haman alone. This call is intense. This word cry, it's, a, it's literally a loud summons or an, a ringing cry. Uh, you think of the sound of a bell ringing. Uh, that's the idea that's being expressed here. You know, there's this constant tone being sent out, like the pealing of a bell. The psalmist is moaning before the Lord. He's shouting before the Lord. And then he gets into his complaint. He begins with a diagnosis. Uh, he says, you know, my soul, myself, I'm filled with troubles. Uh, I, literally, I'm filled with distress, misery, calamity. I have overwhelming sorrow. Uh, again, my life is drawing near to the grave. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm coming to the end of my ropes. I'm coming to the end of my life. And, uh, you know, there's a sense that, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of end, that his life uh, is terminal, that he's about to be counted with those who go down to the pit, uh, literally to the abode of the dead, Sheol. Uh, so, you know, I'm about to die, I'm about to be buried, and I'm about to go into the place where the righteous or the unrighteous reside uh, at that time. He says, I've lost my strength. I'm powerless. So he's weak. He's adrift among the dead. He describes himself, listen, I'm like a guy wounded in battle who's just lying there in the grave. I'm a dead man. I've been forgotten. I feel like I'm cut off from God's hand. The idea of being cut off from God's hand is, is a sense, uh, a poetic way of saying I've been forgotten by God. To be severed from God is to be severed from life. And so he, he feels like, okay, I must be rejected by God. And that's really expressed in verses 6 through 9. Um, you know, 
I'm in this deep darkness. Uh, you know, he's probably suffering from some degree of depression because he's just at wit's end of this physical suffering. And, uh, you know, he, he says, I'm, I'm despairing because of your wrath. This is where he's at. I must have done something wrong. I must be experiencing God's wrath. Now, we don't know that that's the case. And it may not be the case. But he's petitioning God because nothing else is working. This distress, this calamity, this misery, this physical suffering that he is facing seemingly has no end. And so now he's like, okay, Lord, you know, what have I done that you have chosen to place your wrath upon me? It's lying heavy upon me and it's coming in waves. He feels, God, I'm separated from you and I'm under judgment. And not only from you, but now I'm separated from my acquaintances, from my companions. I've become an abomination. Now, probably he's got some kind of sickness that has made him ritually unclean. For example, uh, leprosy. If someone uh, became leprous, they had to live outside the city. They had to stay in a leper's camp or a leper colony uh, because they were considered ritually unclean. And again, it wasn't to be mean or nasty to put them into quarantine, but it was for a purpose to protect other people. Okay? That's why God designed quarantine uh, and to set people apart that were ritually unclean. Uh, again, why? To protect the other people from not getting the illness of leprosy or whatever else other uh, sickness may have been. So whatever sickness he's suffering from, and while the text doesn't specifically tell us, uh, if we go through the, uh, the law, uh, there's a list of several different diseases which he could have had that would have made him have to be separated from his family to be put into quarantine. But he's been in quarantine so long uh, that, you know, I, I, I don't even know my family anymore. I haven't seen my friends in so long. I've, I've forgotten their faces. Uh, he says, I'm shut up. You know, I've become a prisoner. And I think this is really, he, he's become a prisoner in his own body. Uh, there's physical and emotional stress of confinement uh, that he's expressing here. He's trapped. I cannot get out. And now my eyes are wasting away. They're growing dim. And it's possible that whatever this physical affliction is, it was even beginning to affect his eyesight. This man is in mental and physical and emotional pain. This is a picture of total despair. And again, we don't know why God brought it into his life. The only thing he can figure is, God must be judging me. But what we see here is a theme of constant prayer and addressing God by his personal name, Yahweh. The psalmist also reminds us that the Lord has, that the Lord that he has called daily to him. And he stretched out his hands in supplication. In other words, his body language is consistent with his need and desire. You know, so he's not just, you know, going through a mental exercise here. He's putting his entire body into this prayer. You know, whether it's the folding of the hands, the bowing of the head, prostrating himself, lying flat on the ground, whatever the physical that he took, the physical form he took in his prayer was meant to express the sincerity and and uh, of approaching God and the desire for God to hear him. And, you know, a lesson for us to learn here is that we too need to be persistent in prayer. And it doesn't have to mean that we get to the case of where our suffering is so bad that it drives us to that point. We need to be persistent in prayer even before, before that. Also, we need to address God. He is our Father. 
And so let's call him our father. Let's address him as our father. Verse 10 through 12. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Selah. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? We have a shotgun here of rhetorical questions addressed to God in these verses. Uh, Again, death is near. God, I've got to convince you why you need to heal and deliver me. I'm living under this shadow of death this shadow of suffering, this shadow of despair, this shadow of depression. And notice, he says, listen, God, it's in your best interest to keep me alive. Why? He says four things. Number one, there are no wonders, there's no miracles for the dead. Listen, while I'm alive, you could heal me, and it would be a testimony of your power. You can't do that when I'm dead. Two, The dead are not going to rise up and praise God. Listen, if you want worshipers, you need living people. Now again, this is being written from his perspective and his theological understanding of the day. Obviously, we understand that as believers, we're we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, and we're going to continue to worship him. But again, he's looking at this from, hey, listen, I'm alive, Lord. I want to worship you in the land of the living. Again, understand They don't yet understand heaven. There's no such thing as a believer going to heaven before the Messiah died. They were going down to Sheol, to the place of the dead. Now, certainly, uh, it wasn't hell that they were going to. Yes, if they were unregenerate, they were going to hell. Uh, The believers were going to what was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Uh, But again, their understanding of what that was, he hadn't been there yet. Uh, And so his understanding was very limited. We don't really get a true understanding of the aspects of Sheol until we get to the New Testament. So again, Lord, heal me now so I can worship you. Uh, Third, there's no witness to Yahweh from the grave. Listen, no one in the grave is testifying of your covenant love, your loving kindness, or your faithfulness. And again, it kind of reminds us of what of, of Luke 16, where the rich man says, oh, Lord, let me go back and let me testify. And he said, listen, even if you went back and testified, they're not going to listen. Uh, you know, once you've passed from this life, that's it as far as interacting in this life. And then the fourth thing, he says, uh, in the dark, in the land of forgetfulness, uh, God's wonders, God's mighty acts, and his righteousness will not be known. And again, Lord, listen, if I pass from this life, any opportunity for you to do something miraculous in my life is going to be passed. And, you know, people are not going to have an opportunity to praise you. So, Lord, heal me so you can get the glory. Heal me so you can get the praise. You know, for all of these reasons, he says, Lord, answer my prayers. Heal me. Deliver me. And he continues pouring out his soul in persevering prayer. He doesn't give up on God. And, you know, and, and again, he, he's not rebuked for this. There is no rebuke in Scripture. He's simply pouring out the, 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 the heartfelt desire he has and the reasons why he believes God should deliver him from this shadow of darkness. And the same is true for us when we pray. There's nothing wrong when we pray of saying, Lord, listen, this is why I need you. This is what I need. And Lord, I believe that if you do this, you know, you're going to be glorified. You're going to be praised and, you know, perform this deed in my life so that others may see your power and glory. Finally, verses 13 to 18 is our supplication. 
But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me all together. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. You know, he reinforces his supplication here. He's reminding Yahweh, listen, Lord, I'm praying to you. You know, it's like he started out crying out to Yahweh. Again, Yahweh, I'm still here. I'm still praying. And I'm crying out. I'm peeling forth like a bell. In the morning, I begin my day seeking your face. And at night, I go to bed seeking your face. And nevertheless, I am greeted with silence. You know, how many of us have experienced that same thing? When we pray, there's seeming silence on the other end. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why have you forgotten me? Why, why have you just left me out here to flounder around? You know, the deepest pain this man is experiencing isn't his physical suffering or his emotional or his mental. It's the spiritual. His deepest pain is God's absence. God, why have you rejected me? Why have you turned your face from me? Why? What have I done to cause you this displeasure? And it's been long-standing. God, I've been dealing with this since I was a youth. Now, more than likely, he is not an old man at this point. You know, he's probably just beyond the days of adolescence. He's in young adulthood. But whatever he's been suffering from this physical ailment uh, has afflicted him from an early age. God's terrors have overcome him. And the word uh, overcome is interesting. It's the word for embarrassed. Uh, you know, I'm shamed. I am shamed by the terrors that have come into my life. Uh, God's burning anger or the fullness of his anger has, has encompassed him, has gone over him. And uh, they've cut him off. They've annihilated him. And he describes them, that idea of encompassing him altogether. Literally, I'm just drowning in a flood of affliction. I'm rejected by my lover. Obviously, his spouse, his wife, had had rejected him because of his physical illness. Now, again, this probably alludes to the fact that he had to be set outside of the camp. He had to stay outside, away from family, a friend, away from his friends, away from his wife. Uh, the love, as he says here. Uh, also, his friends, his neighbors, his companions or acquaintances. They've all been taken away. And my friends, listen. Do we not understand that... Suffering, whether it's physical, uh, emotional, or mental, is so much greater when someone is lonely, when someone is uh, f feels like no one is there, like they're all alone, and it just intensifies what they're struggling with. That's where this man's at. Now, <clears throat> as we bring this to a close, Notice there's no resolution to the psalm. You know, we read so many other psalms and we see, you know, the, the petition, we see the prayer, we see the supplication, and then we hear the answer. And we see where the psalmist begins to uh, change uh, and experience healing or experiencing hope, whatever. Here, there's none of that. The, it just ends mid-prayer, okay? There's no confession of faith. There's no cry of confidence. There's no healing. The prayer is just open-ended. And I think the point is this, prayer is enough. You know, it's not, well, if I hear from God, then it's enough. No, it, well, if he heals me, it's enough. No, prayer is enough. God's answers are still open. 
God still expects us to pray. We pray for the sick. We pray for ourselves. And we're to continue to pray and not cease, just as this prayer seemingly has not ceased in several millennia. So as we ourselves may have the opportunity to pray this prayer, Psalm 88, or to pray one similar, whatever your prayer is, whether it's in a time of suffering, time of sickness, be diligent in your prayer. Persevere in your prayer. Cry out to God. Tell God exactly why you think he should heal you or deliver you or redeem you, whatever it may be. And again, a note on that. I know maybe you're thinking, well, you know, should I, you know, am I bargaining with God? Listen, look at Abraham. When God came to him and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what did Abraham begin to do? He began to pray to God. Praying to God for what? Deliver. Oh, God, don't do that. What if there's this? And so Abraham begins, in a sense, bargaining or petitioning with God. Lord, if there's this, will you do this? Yes. Well, if there's this many, would you do it? Yes. Well, what if there's only this many? Yes. And of course, we know there weren't that many, but what did God do? He still answered Abraham, and he delivered those righteous people from the city before destruction came. So there's nothing wrong with petitioning or bargaining with God. Now, be very careful before I end. Let me add this caveat. Do not bargain with the God in the sense of, Lord, if you do this, then I will do this. Okay, notice he's not saying any of that here. Abraham didn't utter that kind of bargain, okay? Lord, will you do this if this many people? And again, Lord, if you do this, you will be praised. Lord, if you do this, you will be glorified. Okay, notice that neither Abraham nor Heman uh, said, well, God, if you heal me, then I'll, I'll go and serve you this way. No, don't do that. Because remember, you make that kind of a promise, you let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Okay, do not bind yourself to something that you are unable to keep. You know, this bargaining here was all back on God. Lord, if you heal me, you will be glorified. You will be praised. Uh, Your testimony will be known throughout the land. So again, we can petition God. We can bargain with God. Let's be careful that we're not trying to negotiate with God and put up promises that we can't keep. All right, so let's pray. Father God, as uh, we come to you, we give you the praise. We give you the thanks because you are the God of our salvation. And that's why we come to you through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood, who covered our sins, who died on our behalf, who was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And Father God, you are the Almighty One. You are the God of Israel. You are the God of your people. uh, And you have uh, called us your holy ones, your saints. You've made us blameless holy and accepted in your sight. We give you the praise for that. Father, we do ask now, uh, because we live in a sin-cursed world and we're afflicted. Uh, Some more afflicted than others. Some afflicted even to the point of of death. Some so afflicted that they despair uh, and, and seemingly have no hope. And so, Father, on behalf of each and every one, we lift them up before you and ask that your healing hand would be upon them, Lord. And in in healing them, in, in delivering them, in, in helping them. Father, may you get the praise. May you get the glory. May people see your good hand at work on your people, your holy ones, your saints, your children whom you have adopted. And so, Father, we uh, ask as well that you would keep us from sin, uh, keep us from your judgment. Uh, we don't know whether this man's physical affliction was from sin or just life under the curse, but, but he felt the sting of judgment 
And so, Father, it's certainly good for us to examine ourselves and consider whether uh, there's anything we have done that has put us under judgment. If so, Father, we confess it before you, we forsake it, we loathe it, Lord, and uh, we pray that you'd give us the victory over it. So, Lord, may you receive all the praise, may you get all the glory, both today and forever. And we say to this, amen.